Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, that he lived and died and rose again and now is engaged in this beautiful ministry in the most holy place of the sanctuary. I pray that today our hearts will be knitted together as believers in Jesus and in his soon coming, and that we will understand the urgency of the times in which we live and ask you by your grace, by, under your instruction, to teach us what we should be doing in earth's last hour. Thank you for each person that's here, and I pray most of all that your Holy Spirit will be present among us. In the name of Jesus, amen. So I love the spiritual that the King's Heralds used to sing. You might remember it. If you ever needed the Lord before, you sure do need him now. You remember that one? So do you think we're living in the last days? I really do. Some recent images that come into my mind include the unprecedented political polarization, the willingness of nearly the entire world to call the Pope the spokesperson for not just Christianity, but for world morality, the increasing willingness of Americans to trade off civil liberties for security at whatever cost, the disregard of humanity for Earth's resources and for the poor, wars, tyranny, terrorism, abuse, terrible violations of human rights, violence in our U.S. cities and around the world, LGBT sexual activity mainstreamed and lauded in the media and entertainment, and Supreme Court decisions such as the Trinity Lutheran ruling on June 26, 2017 that blew a huge hole in the wall between church and state. If we ever needed the Lord before, we sure do need him now. And apparently journalists are wondering, what's going on in our world? The cover of Newsweek some time ago said, Apocalypse now, tsunamis, earthquakes, nuclear meltdowns, revolutions, what's next? Well, we know what's next, the coming of Jesus. And then Time magazine said, the decline and fall of Europe and maybe the West. And the Times of Israel posted online, the gloom and doom of Brexit. And we have to mention the systematic continuation of black Americans being unjustly targeted and killed by authorities, along with the equally wrongful retaliation perpetrated on peace-protecting police officers. It's a mess. So what is the role of a prophet in a time of crisis? According to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, prophets receive messages from God to give to the people. Let's look at how the prophet receives these messages. The message originates with the Godhead, the Trinity passes the messages on to the angel who gives the message to the prophet, and the prophet passes, passes the messages to the people, that is, to us. So prophets open our eyes to help us see our potential, our calling, our purpose, as God sees it at this time of earth's history. The work of a prophet is to open our eyes so that we can see where Jesus is active. We can see what God is doing, what he will do, and best of all, the kind of people that he wants us to be at this time of earth's history. Because he wants us to be effective witnesses today. Some prophets give us a peek at eschatological or last day events. Some prophets also predict future events. In 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 17, we read that everything happened exactly as the man of God had predicted. And let's also note Daniel chapter 10, verse 14. The angel told the prophet Daniel, Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days? That's what we want to know, isn't it? 
We want to know what's going to happen to God's people in the latter days. So today we're going to see how the prophets open our eyes to see what God is doing right now to wake us up so we don't sleep through the greatest crisis this world has ever seen. And by the way, as we get closer and nearer uh, and understand who Jesus is in greater ways through his prophets and through his spirit, and we respond to his invitation to get involved in kingdom work because we recognize the urgency of the times in which we live, our life is never boring. We've heard some of those testimonies already, haven't we, just since we've been here at ASI. And you know this in your own life, that God has adventures and opportunities and divine appointments that are just beyond what we could imagine. And let's remember, God hopes to mobilize an inclusive church. Total member involvement. None of us are left out. God is looking to empower a gender-inclusive, race-inclusive, age-inclusive movement. God empowers us not just to witness in these end times, all as essential as that is, but to personal holiness. Now, holiness isn't exactly a hot topic among Christians today, but Jesus calls us, all of us, to confess our pride, our materialism, our addictions, be those addictions, alcoholism or pornography or eating disorders or obsession with the internet or obsession even with work. God calls us to confess and forsake our addictions and to live passionately and radically for him, 24-7, not just at church. So what does possessing a good character have to do with last-day events? Well, just before Jesus comes, the population is going to be divided into just two groups, those who have the seal of God and those who have the mark of the beast. And as we move into this presentation on who receives the mark of the beast, I want to say something particularly to those of you who may be listening on audio verse, whose religious background may not be Seventh-day Adventist. I may quote something today that you will find intriguing or even disturbing or maybe challenging to the belief system that you have held all of your life. And if that is the case, I'd like to invite you to dialogue with these issues with a Seventh-day Adventist pastor or just spend a little extra time in your Bible, particularly the books of Daniel and Revelation, maybe concurrent with the last ten chapters of the book, The Great Controversy, by Ellen G. White. In our discussion of last-day events today, we're going to be reminded that there are organizations, there are systems through which... Satan accomplishes his deceptions. But there are honest-hearted individuals, believers, we can say, within those systems. And what does God say about them? Isaiah 56, 7, these, in other words, these honest believers and other faith communities, I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house of prayer shall be called a house of prayer for how many people? Yes. So where is God going to bring these believers that are currently in other churches? He's going to bring them into one faith, one fold, one baptism, according to Ephesians 4, 5. And how does God call his people out of Babylon, out of these other belief systems? He uses his church. We are his agents to give the loud cry to come out of Babylon, to come out of doctrinal confusion. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. Revelation 18.4. And according to John chapter 16, verse 13, 
the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will ultimately guide his people into truth, into biblical truth, and out of organizations and systems and faith communities which deny biblical truth. And by the way, the heart of the discussion of last day events is not exactly when a national or a universal Sunday law will occur. It's not a superficial excitement over the latest novel interpretation of Daniel 11, even though the study of Revelation and the study of Daniel is essential for God's people in this time. But the focus is a deep commitment of heart and mind and soul to Jesus who died for us. It's loving the lost as Jesus loved them and reaching out with him in his redemptive mission. So, okay, let's return to our two groups into which the whole world is divided just before the coming of Jesus. In Revelation 9, we find mention of the group who receive the, reseal, the seal of God. Revelation 9, 4, they were told not to hurt the grass or the plants or the trees, but to attack all the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And the seal of God is also the theme of Ezekiel, chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. What is the seal of the living God? According to Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, and chapter 31, verses 12 through 17, we are reminded that the elements of a seal are contained within the fourth commandment. The creator of heaven and earth, his area of jurisdiction, heaven, earth, Thus, those who would have the seal of God in their foreheads must keep the Sabbath of the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment alone of all the ten contains the seal of the great lawgiver, the creator of the heavens and the earth. The Sabbath draws a separating line between us and the world, not faintly, but in plain, distinct colors. To those who have received the light of the truth, the Sabbath is a test. It's not a human requirement, but God's test. It will distinguish between those who serve God and those who serve him not. And upon this point, what point? The Sabbath. Will come the last great conflict between truth and error. All who profess to keep God's law should stand united in the sacred observance of the Holy Sabbath. And what will be the spiritual condition of those who receive the seal of God's approval? Those who overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil will be the favored ones who shall receive the seal of the living God. What? Is that even a possibility in today's culture? The promise is certain. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All God's biddings are enablings, yes. And we can cooperate with him by avoiding reading, seeing, or hearing that which will suggest impure thoughts. So how important is holiness? The seal of the living God will be placed upon those only who bear a likeness to Christ in character. So if you're listening to this presentation today on Audioverse, I'm not sharing where this is found, but I'm giving them my presentation. So if they put the whole thing, including the slides on, you will know where these cita citations are found. So are we living in the sealing time now? Yes, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Ellen White says the sealing time is very short, and it will soon be over. Now is the time, while the four angels are holding the four winds, to make our calling and our election what? Sure. 
And by the way, I love 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, with its assurance that we can know that we have eternal life. We don't need to be in doubt. We can know this. Who then receives the mark of the beast? Is it Sabbath, Sabbath keepers? Well, it could be if they keep the Sabbath for any reason other than a response to grace. But in that last day, the mark of the beast will be placed on those who persist in honoring a day based on the traditions of humanity and not on the word of God. The sign or seal of God is revealed in the observance of the seventh-day Sabbath, the Lord's memorial of creation. And I believe this is why creation is being attacked today, within and without our church, because it is an attack on the seventh-day Sabbath, which is a memorial of creation. The mark of the beast is opposite of this, the observance of the first day of the week. How many people did Ellen White say had the mark of the beast? That's right, none. Yet. No one has yet received the mark of the beast. So when do persons receive the mark of the beast? You might smile at this picture, but my assistant enjoys finding pictures. We probably, the mark of the beast probably won't look like this. The testing time has not yet come. There are true Christians in every church, including the Roman Catholic communion. None are condemned until they have had the light and have seen the obligation of the fourth commandment. But when the decree shall go forth enforcing the counterfeit Sabbath, what's the counterfeit Sabbath? Sunday. And the loud cry of the third angel shall warn men against the worship of the beast in his image. The line will be clearly drawn between the false and the true. Then those who still continue in transgression will receive the mark of the beast. So what does Ellen White have to say about 666? Actually, nothing. But she does discuss Armageddon. What, where, and why is Armageddon? She says two great opposing powers are revealed in the last great battle. On one side stands the creator of heaven and earth. All on his side bear his signet. What is his signet? The Sabbath. They are obedient to his commands. On the other side stands the prince of darkness with those who have chosen apostasy and rebellion. The powers of evil will not yield up the conflict without a struggle, but providence has a part to act in the battle of Armageddon. When the earth is lighted with the glory of the angel of Revelation 18, the religious elements, good and evil, will awake from slumber, and the armies of the living God will take the field. Who does she say will be asleep? Everybody. She says the religious elements, good and evil, will awake from slumber. All the world will be on one side or the other of the question. The battle of Armageddon will be fought, and that day must find none of us sleeping. Is Armageddon a real or a spiritual battle? The battles waging between the two armies are as real as those fought by the armies of this world. And on the issue of the spiritual conflict, eternal destinies depend. So some believe that Armageddon would be both a spiritual and a literal battle. What did Ellen White say about 9-11? There may be members of your churches who are certain that Ellen White predicted 9-11. At least I encounter such persons. But actually, did Ellen White did not specifically mention the events of 9-11. She did make some statements, however, 
that are very thought-provoking in light of current acts of terrorism. She wrote, I have no light in particular in regard to what is coming on New York, only that I know that one day the great buildings there will be thrown down by the turning and overturning of God's power. Death will come in how many places? All places. This is why I am so anxious for our cities, notice plural, cities, to be warned. Notice at the end. The flattering monuments of men's greatness will be crumbled in the dust even before the last great destruction comes upon the world. The end is near, and every city is to be turned upside down in every way. That's a phenomenal statement. Just let it soak in for a second. There will be confusion in how many cities? Every city. Everything that can be shaken is to be shaken. And we do not know, or we will not know, what will come next. The great shock to the American system is realizing that no fortress is inviolate, no wall tall enough, and no place really safe. But the journalist leaves off two important words, without Jesus. Anywhere with Jesus, I can safely go. Oh, we may lose our earthly life. But our eternal life is safe with Jesus, and that's what counts. The Lord is removing his restrictions from the earth, and soon there will be death and destruction, increasing crime and cruel evil working against the rich who have exalted themselves against the poor. Those who are without God's protection will find no safety in any place or position. Human agents are being trained and are using their inventive power to put in operation the most powerful machinery to wound and to kill. This citation I surprisingly found in the most politically conservative mainstream weekly news magazine in the United States. I found it some time ago, but it seems more apropos today than ever. The yawning gap between the wealthiest Americans and those at the bottom of the economic ladder is getting wider, and the, tr and the trend shows no sign of slowing. Progressivity used to mean taxing the better off to assist societies less fortunate. That concept has now been stood squarely on its head. Taxes for the well-to-do are lower today than they've been in 60 years. It's role reversal for Robin Hood. We're robbing the poor to enrich the rich. We don't have time to really unpack the sociological or political or economic reality of that citation and those others that I gave, except to encourage you to see that reality both as the, the sign or a sign of the approaching nearness of Christ's return and also perhaps an indictment on our collective failure to care for the poor and the marginalized and for the victims of injustice, as Jesus would do. Income disparities between the richer and poorer nations of the world have generated unrest and violence on an unprecedented global scale. Did you know that almost half of the world, that's over 3 billion people, live on less than the equivalent of $2.50 a day. At least 80% of humanity lives on less than the equivalent of $10 a day. And if your monthly income is $100 or more per month, you are in the top 1% of the world's wealthiest people. It gives new meaning to the 1%, doesn't it? 
I've traveled in 65 countries in our world, and the income disparities I've seen with my own eyes have generated violence and civil wars in many countries. What does Ellen White say about the results of impoverished slums versus unconscionable mansions, not just in developing countries, but also in the United States? She writes, great evils would result from the continued accumulation of wealth by one class and the poverty and the degradation of another. Here's a description of Europe and the United States today. Those who hold the reins of government are not able to solve the problem of moral corruption, poverty, pauperism, and increasing crime. They are struggling in vain to place business operations on a more secure basis. The moneyed men, because they have the power, she's particularly talking about realtors, control the market. They purchase at low rates all they can obtain and then sell at greatly increased prices. This means starvation to the poorer classes and will result in a civil war. And we know how that conflict ends. Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2. At that time shall Michael stand up, that great prince which stands for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. But the rich and poor clash is not the only indication that Jesus is about to come. The restraining spirit of God is even now being withdrawn from the world. Hurricanes, storms, tempests, fire and flood, disasters by sea and land follow each other in quick succession. Science seeks to explain all these. The signs thickening around us, telling us of the near approach of the Son of God, are attributed to any other than the true cause. She says Satan works through the elements also. What are elements? Weather patterns, yes. To garner his harvest of unprepared souls. He's in the killing business. He's out to destroy. Jesus is out to save. Satan is out to destroy. Satan has studied the secrets of the laboratories of nature. And he uses all his power to control the elements as far as God allows. While appearing to the children of men as a great physician who can heal all their maladies, Satan will bring disease and disaster. Who brings disease and disaster? Yeah, let's not blame these things on God. Until populous cities are reduced to ruin and desolation. Even now he is at work. In accidents and calamities by sea and by land, in great conflagrations, in fierce tornadoes and terrific hailstorms, in tempests, floods, cyclones, tidal waves, and earthquakes, in every place and in a thousand forms, Satan is exercising his power. These visitations are to become more and more frequent and disastrous. Destruction will be upon both man and beast. Are you still with me? All right, catch this. And then the great deceiver will persuade men that those who serve God are causing these evils. What evils? Civil war, calamities, catastrophes, weather aberrations, fires, earthquakes. It will be claimed that those who present the claims of the fourth commandment, in other words, Sabbath keepers, thus destroying reverence for Sunday, are troublers of the people, preventing their restoration to divine favor and temporal prosperity. And this is not only in the future. 
Some time ago, I taught a class to the Adventist pastors in Egypt, and one of the pastors brought me this exact newspaper that I scanned, and on the front page of this Cairo newspaper, it identified Seventh-day Adventists as the cause of 9-11. Later, I was giving a, a class to the pastors in Indonesia, and another pastor in Indonesia told me that Indonesian newspapers have also identified Seventh-day Adventists as the cause of 9-11. It will be declared that men are offending God by the violation of the Sunday Sabbath and that this sin, of not keeping Sunday, has brought calamities which will not cease until Sunday observance shall be strictly enforced. Ellen White says, Roman Catholics acknowledge that the change of the Sabbath was made by their church. And indeed they do. This slide is from the Internet Catholic Encyclopedia. It says the church, on the other hand, after changing the day of rest from the Jewish Sabbath or seventh day of the week to the first, made the third commandment refer to Sunday as the day to be kept holy as the Lord's day. So what else does Ellen White say about this acknowledgement by the Catholic Church itself that they changed the day of holiness from Saturday to Sunday? She states, and they, the Catholic Church, cite this change as evidence of the authority of the church to legislate in divine things and declare that Protestants, by observing the Sabbath as thus changed, are recognizing her power, are recognizing the power of the Catholic Church. So Protestants who keep Sunday, Ellen White says, are recognizing the authority of the Catholic Church to change the day. And again, we find Catholic literature itself supporting Ellen White's statements. Here is something from uh, the... Uh, the Catholic magazine called The Rock. It says, The Catholic Church gets full credit or blame for the change. It's well to remind the Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, and all other Christians that the Bible does not support them anywhere in their observance of Sunday. Sunday is an institution of the Roman Catholic Church, and those who observe the day observe a commandment of the Catholic Church. From the Catholic publication, Our Sunday Visitor, Protestants accept Sunday rather than Saturday as the day for public worship after the Catholic Church made the change. But the Protestant mind does not seem to realize that in observing Sunday, they are accepting the authority of the spokesman for the church, the Pope. So someone asked um, a Catholic editor if these old quotations that Adventists often use in their evangelistic services are still correct. And his answer, you see it down there at the bottom of the slide, of course, these two old citations are exactly correct. The Catholic Church designated Sunday as the day for corporate worship and gets full credit or blame for the change. So in a question and answer column in a Catholic book, a catechism book, someone submitted this query, which, is the, which day is the Sabbath day? Answer, we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. In fact, a Catholic Church publication states that Adventists are the only Protestants that keep the biblical Sabbath. I want you to note what the Catholic Universe Bulletin says. By what authority did the Roman Catholic Church change the observance of Saturday, of the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday? 
The Roman Catholic Church changed the observance of the Sabbath to Sunday by right of the divine, infallible authority given to her by her founder, Jesus Christ. The Protestant claiming the Bible to be the only guide of faith has no warrant for observing Sunday. In this matter, the Seventh-day Adventist is the only consistent Protestant. Now, you'll notice that I'm really stressing the Saturday-Sunday thing today because it is the issue upon which the last great conflict will be fought. Again, from this Catholic book, Things Catholics Are Asked About, nowhere in the Bible is it stated that worship should be changed from Saturday to Sunday. Now, the church, the Catholic church, instituted by God's authority Sunday as the day of worship. This same church, by the same divine authority, taught the doctrine of purgatory long before the Bible was made. We have, therefore, the same authority for purgatory as we have for Sunday. Some theologians have held that God likewise directly determined the Sunday as the day of worship in the new law, that he himself has explicitly substituted the Sunday for the Sabbath. But this theory is now entirely abandoned. Now remember, this is a Catholic book. It is now commonly held that God simply gave his church the power to set aside whatever day or days she would deem suitable as holy days. The Roman Catholic Church chose Sunday as the first day of the week and in the course of time added other days as holy days. On July 7, 2009, while the world was mesmerized with the spectacle of pop idol Michael Jackson's flamboyant funeral, major prophetic events were transpiring in Rome virtually unnoticed. What happened? Just before the G8 summit in Italy in July of 2009, when leaders of the world's top eight industrial nations assembled to discuss the global economic crisis of that time, you will recall, Pope Benedict XVI released an encyclical. You know that an encyclical is the most authoritative papal document. And in this encyclical, he says, to manage the global economy, to revive economies hit by the crisis, there is urgent need of a true world political authority. In talking about this world authority, the Pope explains that it would need to be universally recognized and to be vested with effective, what's the next word? Power. Yes, this was written by Pope Benedict, granted, but the system has not changed. There's more in Benedict's letter. The Pope also argued that there is a strongly felt need for a reform of the United Nations organization and likewise of economic institutions so that the concept of the family of nations can acquire real teeth. Real teeth. What does that remind you of? Yes, Daniel 7, the fourth beast of Daniel 7, which has great iron teeth. The day after that G8 summit, the Pope had his first meeting with President Obama. And what did he give the President of the United States? A white leather-bound copy of that encyclical. We have a gentler Pope today, right? Who gifted President Trump with treatises on climate change, suggesting to President Trump that the observance of Sunday would be a way to conserve resources and de-accelerate climate change. Interesting, huh? But back to a further clarification of the Vatican's call for the creation of a global political authority to manage the economy. On this 18-page response to the financial crisis, the Vatican called for universal jurisdiction and a central world bank with the UN 
becoming the initial vehicle for economic reform on the way to creating a world political authority. The words from Revelation 13.3 come to my mind, and all the world followed and marveled the beast. Those who have ears, let them hear the footsteps of our approaching king. Many have wondered whether Islam could be influenced by Catholic leadership and initiatives. Well, Pope Francis increased his stature as the world's undisputed religious leader when the highest-ranking Sunni Muslim came to the Vatican in May of 2016. With ISIS increasing acts of terrorism, religious and civil leaders are uniting in unexpected alliances. What does this mean? We are standing on the threshold of great and solemn events. Prophecies are fulfilling. Strange and eventful history is being recorded in the books of heaven. Events which was declared would shortly precede the great day of God. As the defenders of truth refuse to honor the Sunday Sabbath, some of them will be thrust into prison. Some will be exiled. Some will be treated as slaves. To human wisdom, all this now seems impossible. But as the restraining spirit of God shall be withdrawn from men, they shall be under the control of Satan, who hates the divine precepts, and there will be strange developments. What are these strange developments? Protestantism shall give the hand of fellowship to the Roman power, and then there will be a law against the Sabbath of God's creation. And then it is that God will do his strange work in the earth. These four Protestant individuals, both President Bush, President Bush, both Presidents Bush, Laura Bush, President Clinton, that you see on this slide, they are not standing. They are kneeling before the corpse of the Pope, perhaps to the amazement even of the cardinals that you see standing in the background. On March 29, 1994, 40 leading evangelical Protestants and Roman Catholics, including the late Pat Robertson and John Cardinal O'Connor, signed a historic document titled Evangelicals and Catholics Together, The Christian Mission in the Third Millennium. Newspapers heralded that merger with such headlines as Christians herald new era, Catholics embrace evangelicals. Charles Colson was widely acknowledged as the Christian rights leading intellectual in the United States. He was the architect behind faith-based initiatives and the negotiator who forged the Catholic evangelical unity known as co-belligerency. I want you to look at this statement from Colson. European Catholics and Protestants have concluded that the condemnations of the Reformation were based on misconceptions, were aimed at extreme positions on the other side, and no longer apply to today's situation. I wonder, friends, what would be Martin Luther's reaction to that statement that the condemnations of the Reformation no longer apply? And the reaction of Protestant reformers who gave their lives for the principles of the Reformation? What would be the reaction of Martin Luther 
to know that the World Communion of Reformed Churches just signed this month on to an accord between the Roman Catholic Church and Lutherans, finding no theological differences. No theological differences. Co-belligerency is a united front between conservative Catholics and evangelicals uh, in the culture war. Every week, the Christian right holds a war council on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Their goal is to merge church and state and legislate morality as they understand morality. Leading Catholics and evangelicals are cooperating in unprecedented ways. A decade or so, or two decades ago, evangelical support for a Catholic would have been unthinkable. Not very many years ago, many evangelicals viewed the Pope as the Antichrist. These days are long gone. Today, dominionists talk of imposing fundamentalist rule on society, a goal increasingly shared by the more mainstream religious right. Religious liberty does not mean to these folks what it means to you and I. Their version of religious liberty includes, for instance, that religious leaders, pastors, talk politics from the pulpit. A state church is thus in the making with its legislation, that's religious legislation, enforced by the state. So the separating wall between church and state is thus being chipped away. As we celebrate this very year, what happened five years, 500 years ago in Reformation history, let's draw courage from the fidelity of the Protestant reformers, remembering the Courageous words of people like John Wycliffe, Morning Star of the Reformation. I am ready to defend my convictions even unto death. Many of the hundreds of events this year celebrating the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation will be a destructive ecumenism. That is, one that blurs doctrinal differences. Wake up, remnant. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Seventh-day Adventists have historically held that the three frogs, the three spirits of devils, are to be identified as apostate Protestantism, spiritualism, and Catholicism. Ellen White writes, by the decree enforcing the institution of the papacy, what is the institution of the papacy? Right. In violation of the law of God, our nation, the United States, will disconnect herself fully from righteousness. When Protestantism shall stretch her hand across the gulf, to clasp the hand of the Roman power when she shall reach over the abyss to clasp hands with spiritualism when under the influence of this threefold union our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant government and shall make provision for the propagation of papal falsehoods and delusions, then we may know that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan and that the end is near. I think that that's just around the corner myself. Michael Harper called for ecumenical unity between evangelicals, that's apostate Protestants, charismatics, spiritualists, and Roman Catholics. 
This author stated, I must confess to a deep longing to see these sisters, these three groups, reconciled to each other, to see them openly united in Christ and the Spirit, learning from each other, humbly listening to each other. He goes on, it is my conviction that a growing unity between these three forces in the Christian world are both desirable and possible. After five years participation and dialogue with Roman Catholics and several years with evangelicals, I have formed the conclusion that the things which unite us both are more numerous and more weighty than the things which divide us. We're going to be hearing this a lot more. Unity, yes, ecumenical unity is being promoted on all sides, but at what cost? The Reformation is virtually being wiped out. It's being declared a mistake. Are we asleep to these issues? Now, I'm not talking about ecumenical unity where we join hands with our neighbors to combat social ills in our communities. This is good unity. What is destructive to our heritage is unity that merges doctrinal differences, a destructive ecumenism that blurs Adventist's unique identity as God's remnant, raised up by God to actively promote a distinctive message. Several years ago, I was with Dr. Domsti and his group of a Reformation tour. We were in nor northern Italy. Oh, I, I, I hid that slide and forgot to unhide it. Sorry. Anyway, I had a picture of, of a Waldensian church in Torre Pellici in northern Italy. And we, we were touring in Torre Pellici the Waldensian Museum that was just incredibly inspiring. And one of our group said to the young Waldensian, culturally Waldensian guide, so what is your mission? What is the Waldensian mission today? And she said, we have no mission. We fulfilled it in the 13th century. When I heard those words, I was astounded, and I thought, is there a danger of Seventh-day Adventists forgetting that we still have a mission? We've not yet fulfilled it. Those messages of the three angels must be proclaimed in every way possible. Will Protestants reunite with Catholics? The Protestants or evangelicals of the United States will be foremost in stretching their hands across the gulf to grasp the hands of spiritualism. They will reach over the abyss to clasp hands with the Roman power. And under the influence of this threefold union, apostate Protestantism, Catholicism, and spiritualism, this country, the United States, will follow in the steps of Rome in trampling on the rights of conscience. The Roman church is employing every device to extend her influence and to increase her power in preparation for a fierce and determined conflict to regain control of the world, to reestablish persecution, and to undo all that Protestantism has done. Catholicism is gaining ground on every side. These things should awaken the anxiety of all who prize the pure principle of the gospel. The time is not far distant when the test will come to every soul. The mark of the beast will be urged upon us. 
those who have step-by-step yielded to worldly demands and conformed to worldly customs will not find it a hard matter to yield to the powers that be, rather than to subject themselves to derision, insult, threatened imprisonment, and death. The contest is between the commandments of God and the commandments of men. But here's the good news. The deeper the night for God's people, the more brilliant the stars. Satan will surely, sorely harass the faithful. But in the name of Jesus, they will come off more than conquerors. And what about the loud, the loud cry? The message of Christ's righteousness is to sound from one end of the earth to the other to prepare the way of the Lord. This is the glory of God which closes the work of the third angel. Now is the time for us to give the message of the loud cry and ask God through the strengthening, energizing power of the Holy Spirit through his gift of the latter rain. This morning, in your own personal devotions, did you ask God for the Holy Spirit in latter rain power? He's waiting for us as a people, collectively and individually, to ask him for the latter rain. Luke 11. Because amid the tumult of excitement, with confusion in every place, there is a work to be done for God in the world. The remnant of God must shout, must give in whatever ways possible the messages of the first, second, and third angels. Fear God, for the hour of his judgment has come. Babylon is fallen. The mark of the beast will come upon those who keep the false day versus the day that is a memorial of the creation of God in seven literal, contiguous, 24-hour periods. And part of what we can do for God at this time includes sharing our material goods. Thousands of dollars are locked up where they are of no use to anyone. Those who own this money live in a state of continual worry lest they lose their treasure. Thus the Lord's entrusted capital fails to bring an increase to him. God says, use it to benefit and bless someone who in his turn will benefit someone else. And remember, it's not riches in themselves that are wrong. Look at all the good, whatever, however you feel about Bill Gates and whatever, his products, he is using his money around the world to help reduce poverty. Thus, the Lord's entrusted capital fails to bring an increase to him. And we are so privileged, whatever our, our uh, status in terms of wealth or lack of it, to share what we have, not just to reduce poverty, but to give the messages of the three angels. The, uh, use it to benefit and bless someone who, in turn, will benefit someone else. By the blessing of God, money put into circulation to help others steadily increases, multiplying itself. And not every act of compassion, anyway, requires money, right? The last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of God's character of love. You know that, right? Let me say it again. The last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of God's character of love. 
The children of God are to manifest his glory. In their own life and character, they are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. In the time of confusion and trouble before us, a time of trouble such as not been since there was a nation, the uplifted Savior will be presented to all people in all lands that all who look to him in faith may live. And what about the time of trouble? Just before we entered the time of trouble, we all received the seal of the living God. And then I saw the four angels cease to hold the four winds. And I saw famine and pestilence and sword, nation rose against nation, and the whole world was in confusion. Angels are now restraining the winds of strife, that they may not blow until the world shall be warned of its coming doom. But a storm is gathering, ready to burst upon the world. And when God shall bid his angels loose the winds, there will be such a scene of strife as no pen can picture. I saw that the four angels would hold the four winds until Jesus' work was done in the sanctuary. And then will come the seven last plagues. The season of distress and anguish before us will require a faith that can endure weariness, delay, and hunger. A faith that will not faint, though severely tried. The period of probation is granted to all to prepare for that time. Jacob prevailed because he was persevering. He was determined. His victory is an evidence of the power of persistent prayer. All who will lay hold of God's promises as Jacob did and be as earnest and persevering as he was, will succeed as he succeeded. And I think this is such a promise for you, ASI family, because all of you have ministries uh, where you are seeking to give truth, to give uh, the, the specialness of the gospel message, to relieve poverty and need. And you have, many of you, not sufficient resources for the vision that you have. And yet prayer, persistent prayer, can move mountains. If we are called to suffer for Christ's sake, we shall be able to go to prison, trusting him as a little child trusts in its parents. Now is the time to cultivate faith in God. And I think that's so true. You know, I think of Jeremiah's statement that if we can't keep up with the footman, what are we going to do with a guy on horseback? And if we can't cross the Jordan when it's just a little creek, what are we going to do in a time of its swelling? So now is the time for, to, sick, to put our faith roots down deep into the smaller challenges that we're facing today. Do you find yourself a little agitated or nervous about these times that are ahead of us? If so, I want you to, to go back to your room today and to look at these precious promises that Ellen White says are for God's people during that tumultuous time. Consider memorizing Psalms 91. Um, Daniel 12, 1, yes, it says there will be a time of trouble such as never was since the earth began, but God will deliver his people from it. And the same with Psalms 46, written, Ellen White says, for those of us upon whom the ends of the earth have come. Memorize those precious passages and let them bring peace and, and um, a reduction of anxiety to your mind and let them inspire you 
uh, that God has not left his people for one instant. How can we be continually ready to meet Jesus with joy? My dear friends, let the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ be in your minds continually. And let them crowd out worldly thoughts and cares. When you lie down and when you rise up, let them be your meditation. Live and act wholly in reference to the coming of the Son of Man. The sealing time is very short. It will soon be over. Now is the time while the four angels are holding the four winds to make our calling and to make our election sure. This morning in the prayer time, uh, seven, it was so, such a precious time. And if you weren't able to go today, I encourage you to go tomorrow and the next day. And, and several people prayed that, that God would help us in our busyness to not leave out what is most essential. And that is our time in the word of God, our time in prayer, our time seeking God one-on-one. Through faith, the believer passes from the position of a rebel, you know, that dual life thing, a child of sin and Satan, to the position of a loyal subject of Jesus Christ, not because of an inherent goodness, but because Christ receives him or her as his child by adoption. The sinner receives the forgiveness of his sins because those sins are born by his substitute, by his surety, thus pardoned and clothed with the beautiful garments of Christ's righteousness, we stand faultless before God. Do we need to fear the future? Do we need to be frightened of events yet to come? No, God's promises are beautiful. They're comforting. Each of us can claim these, provident, these promises for ourselves. Here's one of my favorites. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's good right there, isn't it? But it goes on. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, will keep you strong right up to the end. Isn't that a great promise? He will keep you strong right up to the end. I love that because I feel so weak in my humanity. He will keep you strong right up to the end. He will keep you free from all blame on the great day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. And how does it all end? Soon there appears in the east a small black cloud, about half the size of a man's hand. Now, many of you are here in this room are over the age of 50, I can tell. And many of you are younger. Um, and so you've heard this before. You've heard this. Soon there appears in the east a small black cloud about half the size of a man's hand. It's familiar to you, right? You know what? I've been in youth ministry over 40 years, and I'm finding that our young people have no idea. Small black cloud about the size of a man's hand? What are you talking about? Let's be sure that our young people know the events that are soon to come and understand what are the, the harbingers of the appearance of Jesus. It is the cloud which surrounds the Savior. The living righteous are changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, while the wicked are blotted from the face of the whole earth. There are homes for the pilgrims of earth. There are robes for the righteous with crowns of glory and palms of victory. All that has perplexed us in the providences of God will, in the world to come, 
be made plain. The things hard to be understood will then find explanation. The mysteries of grace will unfold before us. Where our finite minds discovered only confusion and broken promises, we shall see the most perfect and beautiful harmony. We shall know that infinite love ordered the experiences that seemed most trying. As we realize the tender care of him who makes all things work together for our good, we shall rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I don't know your story today, your heart cry, but Jesus does. And I'm here to tell you that pain cannot exist in the atmosphere of heaven. There will be no more tears, no funeral trains, no badges of mourning. There will be no death, neither sorrow nor crying, for the former things are passed away. The inhabitant shall not say, I am sick. You know, I love big cats, and I never thought that I could pet a big cat before heaven. But here I am in Kenya petting a cheetah. And I have to tell you something, that cheetah purred and licked my hand. My biology friend said, uh, that was a mistake. They do that just before they eat you. <laughs> but it reminded me that language is altogether too feeble to attempt a description of heaven. It will be known only to those who behold it. No finite mind can comprehend the glory of the paradise of God. And I think God wants us to think about heaven. He wants us to think and imagine what it will be to walk and talk with Jesus. What it will be to be together with the faithful, the redeemed from all the ages of eternity. The faithful will stand before the throne, accepted in the beloved. All their sins have been wiped away. All their sins have been blotted out. Their transgressions have been borne away. Now they can look on the undimmed glory of the throne of God. They have been partakers with Christ in his sufferings. And they have been workers together with him in the plan of redemption. And they are partakers with him now in the joy of seeing souls saved in the kingdom of heaven. There to praise God throughout eternity. How does it all end? For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we always be together with the Lord. If during this life, they are loyal to God. They will at last see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And what is the happiness of heaven but to see God? What greater joy could come to the sinner, saved by the grace of Christ, than to look on the face of God and know him as Father? ASI family, we are homeward bound. He who has loved us so much to die for us has built us a city. 
And there will be no sadness in the city of God. No crushed hopes. No buried affections. Because Jesus is going to wipe away every tear. As we see all of these things happening that we've just talked about, are you thinking in your heart, I want to be there? But not just me, Lord. I want my family there. I want my neighbors there. I want to know what is it that you want me to do right now in this little window of opportunity. Paul says, today if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. This is not just the voice of, of coming to Jesus. We've all done that. This is the voice of Jesus calling us to a specific mission. I don't know what it is for you, but every day as we get down on our knees and we say, Lord, pour out your latter rain, prepare my heart to receive it, and prepare me to be your emissary today. Give me a divine appointment, and he will answer that. Because he who has engraved your name on the palms of his hands invites you to serve him with 100% loyalty, 100% passionate commitment to real discipleship. You know, young adults Brad and Kathy Jolie heard that call. They knew what their mission was. In 1992, they went to Mongolia as Adventist frontier missionaries where there was not one Seventh-day Adventist in the entire country. Not one Seventh-day Adventist in the entire country. I was in Mongolia recently. Today, as a result of these two young adults' real faith, real commitment, there are 1,200 Adventists, four churches, 18 companies in Mongolia. Brad Jolie literally gave his life for the Mongolian people. He, with our Adventist pioneers, who live passionately for our Lord Jesus Christ, has been laid to rest waiting that great resurrection. God is calling you to carry that torch. You're already doing it in so many ways, working for God. But he has a vision, I believe, that's even greater than anything that we could have imagined so far. He's not done with us. He wants us to wake up to the urgency of the times in which we live, recognize that our window of opportunity is short, and ask him, what would you have me to do in earth's last hour? All right, let's stand together and let's pray. Father in heaven, you have called us to such a holy commission to be your ambassadors, your representative to a world that's, that's largely indifferent to you. And sometimes we are overwhelmed with the magnitude of the task. We're not really sure how to start, where to start, or how to respond to the events that are happening all around us. But your wisdom is sufficient. Lord, may we not try to do this in our own strength. May we seek you daily, seek the anointing of the Holy Spirit, pray together with friends and, and fellow church members and work together uh, to do in our communities and wherever you call us um, to give this, this message of the first, second, and third angel's message in all its beauty to reveal the character of Jesus in all its purity and holiness and, and love 
in ways that the, the world largely does not understand. Lord, each of these persons come with their own ministry, their, their own thing that you have laid upon their hearts. I ask that you will strengthen that ministry, that you will give them um, a holy boldness, that they can leap over walls, uh, walls of difficulty, walls of challenge, in your strength and under your instruction. And most of all, today, Lord God, I pray that you rain upon us that latter rain that you have promised that will give strength to our witness and enable us to live through the events that are soon to come. It's in your timing, Jesus, but we would like you to remove from the door of our hearts any obstacles that prevents that beautiful gift of heaven. Again, Jesus, thank you for what you've done for the people here, and I pray that you will bless them going forward. In your wonderful name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.